welcome to A Language I Love Is, a podcast all about languages and the people who love them. It's the second series. I'm still your host, Danny, and after the very positive response to the first 15 episodes last year, I've been so keen to get stuck into making more lovely linguistic content. That enthusiasm has meant that I've decided not to make any changes to the format of the last series, at least not yet. I've considered many ideas over December and January, but if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Now that I've rounded up enough willing linguists, this second series of adventures into a variety of beloved languages can begin. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. If you're new to this podcast, also welcome, and allow me briefly to explain how A Language I Love Is works. This show is your chance to get to know different languages of the world, being introduced by expert individuals who have a real passion and personal connection to them. The format remains the same for each episode, but is designed to be open-ended and to give my guests room to tell us what they think we should know. There are four parts. The first, and usually the longest, is the language profile, in which we hear about the fundamentals, the what, who, where, when of the specific language. After that, it moves on to my three questions. What is your relationship to this language? What is something that you love about this language? And what is something that you think the audience should know about this language? Through these four parts, the goal is that you, dear listener, will end up feeling just as informed and enthused about the starring language of each episode. So, without further ado, let's begin the second series and join Jeremy Bradley on a journey into Mari. To kick off the second series, I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. Jeremy Bradley from the University of Vienna, where he is a postdoc researcher in Finno-Ugric studies. Previously been in Vienna, he's been in Helsinki, he's been in Munich, and he's come along today to talk about one language which I dare say will not be known to the majority of listeners, but that's great, that's what this show is all about. So, first things first, Jeremy, how are you doing today and how is life in Vienna at the moment? Great. Thanks. And thanks for the invitation. Right. So, Jeremy, let's start with the big question. What is a language that you love? A language that I love is Mari. It is a Finno-Ugric or Uralic language uh, spoken roughly a thousand kilometers east of Moscow, which places it, compared to the Uralic languages that listeners might have heard of, fairly far to the east. It's actually relatively central if you look at the spread of the Uralic languages. Right. So already we've got some terms that uh, may be new to people. So let's dig into those. Um, when you say Finno-Ugric, you're talking about a language family. This is a very large language family, large in terms of the number of its members, large in terms of its geographical spread. So could you introduce this family and the wider genealogy of Mari? What are some of its linguistic cousins that people might have heard of? So the linguistic cousins of Mari that people might have heard of are Hungarian, Finnish, Estonian, and possibly the Sami languages of northern Fennoscania, historically known under the term Lap. And all of these languages are on the western periphery of the language family. A problem in linguistics in general is that when people want to make assumptions about a language family, they will access 
the data that is accessible to them, understandably so. But this creates a certain availability heuristics. Uh, it creates a certain bias that people want to know how things work in Uralic languages. They look at things in the Uralic languages that they can access, which are then Hungarian, Finnish, Estonian. And oftentimes they will then be looking at European contact features. Like to give you just a random example, looking at all of these languages, you might assume that Uralic languages like to use relative pronouns as we do in English. The man that is sleeping on the bench is my brother. Most Uralic languages don't do that. Most Uralic languages use participle constructions. They would say the under the bench sleeping man is my brother. This is specifically a European contact influence that we see on the Western periphery of, uh, of our language family. It is uh, fun working with a uh, language that is spoken a bit further to the east, where a lot of the, the assumptions that one would make by just scratching the surface of Uralic, by looking at the most European Uralic languages that we have, simply don't hold anymore. Fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. So as a field, linguists really need to work with languages like Mari if we're going to talk correctly about the Finno-Ugric family. That is absolutely fascinating. So yeah, it's it's great work that you and your and your linguist friends are doing. Fantastic. I'm just wondering though, um, can we clarify that there is enormous distance between the different members of the family that you have mentioned? So we've got Hungarian in Central Europe, we've got Finnish and Estonian to the north, and then we've got Mari far to the east. But it's not only geographical distance, it's also time distance. These languages have been separated for a very long time. It's been many centuries since they were one. And consequently, is it fair to say that a Mari speaker won't understand Hungarian? Absolutely. So the relationship between Mari and Hungarian is one where I have to use the tools of historical linguistics to even show that there is any connection there. It is not in any way plainly visible and some of the similarities that we do have between Mari and Hungarian, for example, in vocabulary, are through shared contact influence. So we have some words that sound similar in the two languages, like we have the Hungarian word sher, meaning beer, which in Mari is sira, uh, sounds somewhat similar. It goes back to the, to the same root, but it, this is Turkic. It's a Turkic word in both of these languages. So like shared word stock is relatively, there's relatively little of it. If we want to compare Mari with Finnish or Estonian, this is a place where, uh, where I can also make uh, people without any background in linguistics see that, oh yeah, there is some connection between these. I can find enough words that sound similar enough that people see a see some kind of connection, but they don't understand anything. Now I can give you an example if I were to count to six in Estonian, it would be and in Mari, it would be So it's like if I count to six in Mari in front of an Estonian speaker and ask them what that was that, they'll say, oh, you just counted to six, didn't you? But there is a there is a big difference between being able to recognize that somebody is counting to six and actually understanding the first thing that a person says. So there is there is absolutely no mutual comprehension between, let's say, Mari and Finnish or Mari and Estonian. And also the, like to put this in, in very colloquial terms, the sounds of the language is very, very different, just due to the different histories that these languages have had, both just the arbitrariness that comes with speakers spending thousands of years separated from one another and having arbitrary shifts in different directions, but also just the different contact influences. Mari has been subject to enormous contact influence from Turkic languages. 
and especially like in prosody in accent and whatnot mari like when you hear it for the first time you might more think oh this sounds more like turkish than it sounds like finnish that's really good to know some excellent examples there i really like the idea of you know mari speakers and estonian speakers meeting up and yeah outside of a primary school maths lesson there's not much that they're going to be able to recognize in one another's language as far as i know my early medieval history we know that the hungarians the madyars come from very far away we see them in the historical record arriving in what is now hungary so can we assume that something like hungarian has been on a much longer geographical journey whereas mari remains much closer to where the homeland of all these languages once was? Is Mari still in the area where they all come from? Well, yes and no. Uh, what is definitely true is Hungarians is the wild child of the language family and that it is the only language in our family where it happened within recorded history that the speakers arrived in where the language is spoken now. And there's actually a strange connection between Mari and Hungarian in this respect is that there are not 100% certain, but quite plausible historical accounts of a variety of Hungarians spoken in the Volga region in modern day Bashkortostan up to the 13th century. That it was only during the Mongol invasions that the Eastern Hungarian community in modern day Bashkortostan was, was destroyed. And Bashkortostan, which is like... Um, 1,200 kilometers east of Moscow, my, my rough and probably incorrect guess. In Bashkortostan, primarily Turkic-speaking region, you also have a large Mari community there today. So Mari is spoken close to where Hungarian was still spoken up to the 13th century. But this is not to say that the Mari have been completely sedentary. Uh, most of the toponyms in where Mari is spoken today in the so-called Republic of Mari El, a constituent Republic of the Russian Federation, most of the toponyms there, they are Finno-Ugric, but they are actually Permic, which is a different branch of the language family from Mari. This is the branch of the language family to which Udmurt and Komi belong. And historical records imply that the Mari used to live further to the southwest from where they live now. And that where Permic languages today are spoken to the northeast of where Mari is spoken. The historical record implies that there was sort of a bit of a, a of a sort of a chain migration that the, the Permic speakers moved to the northeast, the Mari speakers moved to the northeast, the Turkic speakers moved to the northeast. So you did have languages belonging to the same language family spoken in this region for a long time. But it is not the case that historical records, archaeological records imply that the ancestor, the linguistic ancestors of Mari, the direct ancestors, have been living in this exact same space for, for centuries, millennia, or something like that. But yeah, it is definitely true that Mari is, unlike Hungarian, spoken within the wider range of where the, the language family is assumed to have been spoken long, long ago, as exemplified by the fact that Hungarian used to be spoken in this very region, which is where we get these some of the linguistic similarities between Mari and Hungarian with loanwords from the same donor languages. So staying with the history of this language, everything that you've mentioned, I think, is prehistory. So this is before the written record for Mari begins. When does that begin? So when do we first start to get sources for Mari? Is it a very early documented language or is it a late arrival into history? It is a late arrival. We know from medieval chronicles that the Maoris existed, but med medieval chronicles were primarily concerned with who's around to pay taxes, who's around to pay tribute to us, 
and very little interest in the ethno-linguistic background of the people who are to pay the taxes. The Maoris primarily were subject to the so-called Khanate of Kazan, a Turkic Islamic state, uh, one of the uh, successors of the, of the Mongol Empire, centered in Kazan. There were also Maori communities subject to the Muscovite crown. We have records of the Maoris existing, but the earliest text we have in Maori was collected around the year 1700, which is quite late in the game, obviously. It was collected or it was brought about by uh, on the initiative of Nicolas Witzen, the mayor of Amsterdam, who was also a big language enthusiast, uh, who managed to get some of his people in Russia to go and visit various minority groups and elicit some texts from them. Of course, around 1700, we're not going to have good methods of language documentation at the time. What they did is that they found speakers of Mari, who were a community, uh, a non-Christian community up to today. The Maoris are majority not Christian. The, the dominant religion among the Maoris is um, a folk religion that is often by external uh, sources called uh, paganism. I personally try to avoid this term. But you had a community of people who were not Christian. They did not speak Russian very well. Uh, so you have somebody sent by the mayor of Amsterdam comes to this community and uh, asks them to translate the Lord's Prayer into Maori. So the first text we have in Maori is a translation of the Lord's Prayer into a very strange seeming form of Maori. And it's strange for multiple reasons. Like firstly, the person writing it down did not know Maori, did not know the sounds of the language and just wrote as best they heard what they could hear. But it also seems very clear that whoever was producing the Maori text didn't really understand what these people want from them. And there's this very, there's this very curious thing in the text. If you look at the Maori text, like some parts of it are relatively easy to figure out what they were trying to say. And there are some parts that are very strange. And one thing that seems very strange is this, in, the, in this first text of Maori, it is said, thy name might be enlightened or thy name shall shine which if you know your Lord's Prayer, that's not actually in there. That seems strange. Why should your name shine? Hallowed be thy name, as I remember it. That is correct. Well, the answer to what happened here is actually not in Mari, but it is in, in Slavic. If you know Slavic languages, you might know that the name, that the words for light and holy are somewhat similar in many of them. And even though in the in Russian of the time these stems were they were distinct, there was a difference between holy be or hallow be thy name and light be your name. We have interactions between people who did not know Russian that well. So the clearest assumption is that they that they just uh, people these non-Christian people who did not know Russian very well, and I don't know how well the people eliciting the data knew Russian. They just misunderstood what was asked from them. So we have these very early, these, this is the earliest text we have in Mari, which is like, it's very hard to make heads or tails of this. Over the course of the 18th century, we ended up having a bit more data collected. And in 1775, we have the first grammar of Mari being collected. But we only start having sizable texts in Mari starting towards the end of the 19th century. And in the late 19th century, early 20th century, we had a so-called a golden period of language documentation 
when uh, initially Finnish scholars would travel to the various speaker communities of the various kindred peoples in Russia and just elicit what they can from them. This was sort of tied to the Finnish national awakening and uh, a desire in Finland to learn as much as you can about all our, uh, about all our linguistic cousins. And uh, then a lot of language data was collected by uh, Hungarian scholars during the First World War from Mari prisoners of war in Austro-Hungarian uh, prisoners of war camp. That's a twist I did not expect. That's very interesting. This is all wonderful history, and I can talk about this, well, for the entirety of the episode, being very much a historian at heart. But let's bring this into the present day. I think people listening will be wondering, what's the status of this language today? It's not a historical language. It's still spoken uh, within the Russian Federation. So could you just tell us, what is the linguistic situation today? How many people speak Mari? And also, the question that comes immediately to my mind is, is it endangered? Is it under threat from the serious influence within the Russian Federation of Russian? So it is definitely endangered. It is hard to put numbers to these questions because all we have are the population censuses. And the population censuses only can register how people self-report. And population censuses also often don't have questions set in a way to optimally address multilingualism which is not optimal when we are in communities where you basically do not have monolingual speakers at all anymore. But depending on how, how much we trust population census, there are clearly uh, hundreds of thousands of speakers of Maori left. It seems a good estimate that there are more speakers of Maori than there are speakers of Icelandic. Nevertheless, Maori is definitely more endangered than Icelandic is because of the trends. The transmission to younger generations is becoming increasingly difficult. Mari has, over recent decades, been losing its structural standing, especially its uh, standing as a language of education, and has been increasingly uh, delegated to being the language of the home, intercommunity language, a kitchen language, if you will. And even in that domain, transmission to very young speakers is vulnerable. So you do actually, you have hundreds of thousands of speakers, but uh, very worrying trends. So you've mentioned already that the majority of Maoris live uh, within the Mari El Republic, which is a, a subdivision of, of the Russian Federation today. Does Mari have any sort of special legal status within that republic? Is it a language of the administration, for example? I'm just wondering because it's it's when you have some sort of protection and, and reason to use the language publicly that languages survive. What's the status there? Yeah, so it's, it's actually more like about half of the Maori speakers live in the Republic of Maori El because the title of republics of the communities in Russia they do not sharply adhere to the boundaries between speaker communities, which is understandable because there are no sharp boundaries between speaker communities. In a lot of these areas, you will have scattered villages of different communities within one area, and you can't draw a clear line between them. Uh, within the Republic of Mari, El Mari is a national language, so it does have a legal status there. But currently, the, the legal protections Mari have are a bit theoretical and toothless in that it will say that like the laws in the Republic of Mariel will say that education must be guaranteed in Mari. Great. 
within what the schools deem manageable under given conditions, which of course gives carte blanche to do nothing if you don't feel like it. And often it's like if you actually go to a public administration authority in the Republic of Mariel and try to speak Mari with people, they'll think that you're making fun of them, that, that, it's, that you're pranking them. It's just considered not a normal thing to do, not within the Mariel Republic, but in within the Komi Republic, uh, that's Komi being another Finno-Uric language. There's actually recently was a legal case about a young Komi speaker who in front of a court insisted on just speaking Komi and insisted on having translation into, into Komi with the judge then saying, well, stop being silly. You're just making fun of us. Of course you speak Russian. And yeah, he does speak Russian, but he was making a point and he was making it effectively. So you have more legal protections for the language in theory than you have in practice. But the fact that it is illegal, that it has this legal standing, it does, it does not, it's not completely meaningless. You have bilingual signage, for example, on street signs. You do have, for example, that um, all the laws are translated into Mari from Russian. I'm not sure how many people read them in Mari, but the translations exist, and they're great for us doing corpus linguistics to have all this uh, this um, this body of legal texts that we have in Mari. And you do have uh, some uh, educational institutions, the state-funded educational institutions, working with Mari. So having like on a university level, some Mari medium education, particularly pertaining to Mari itself. I'd love to explore. I'm fascinated by that attitude you mentioned, the idea that if you spoke this as an outsider to the community, it would come across as as mocking. Where is that coming from? Is it because it's felt to be really a language of the home? The person who might feel the mocking would themselves speak this language, but not want to speak it in public because they want to be seen as a as, as a Russian citizen, as a somebody who is, you know, in in vogue, I suppose. Is there a sense that uh, Mari is a bit of a backwater language, a humble language, not something that in the minds of its speakers should be a public thing? Can we dig into that attitude and why people might have that reaction? So there's a saying in Russian that the Russian is the so-called Yazik Meshtanarotnai Komunikatsi, the language of intercultural communication. And uh, this is today a very solidly held attitude, both within majority and minority communities. And um, there's some history here, too, that for like for the Maoris, there always was a dominant language of intercultural communication. It is fairly recent that it is Russian. But there always was was something like up to the 1970s for a lot of especially Eastern Maori communities, the language of intercultural communication was Tatar, that if you had like um, in, in Bashkortostan, if you had a, somebody from a Maori village interacting with somebody from uh, Udmurt village, that being another Finno-Uric language with no mutual intelligibility, they would speak Tatar with one another, being in the historical realm of the of the Tatar Empire, with Tatar maintaining this um, this high standing. So today, it is clearly Russian is the language of intercultural communication. And if you are as an like and as an outsider, I've experienced this myself as somebody who speaks Mari quite well and whose Russian is quite limited. If I visit these Mari communities, people instinctively want to speak Russian to me because that is the language of intercultural communication. And it's if you do not speak Russian fluently, people almost think that there's something not quite right with you. It is just considered such a basic part of the human experience to be fluent in Russian. 
that uh, it is hard to conceptualize that some people are not. And uh, the reactions you get if you then try to speak Maori within these communities, this is not a perfect analogy, but it is kind of like, imagine you are a native speaker of American English and you go to Liverpool and you start trying to speak deep scowls with people. The people would think that you are, that you're making fun of them at first. It would be hard to imagine that there is motivation beyond this. And this is what happens if you come from outside of the community and try to speak and speak a language that people are not used to using as a language of intercultural communication. But obviously, these things are fluid and, uh, and flexible often that people get used to it. If I spend enough time there and uh, they realize how bad my Russian is and how good my Mari is, that they eventually they start preferring to speak uh, Mari. And a beautiful example of how fluid it can be, a language of intercultural communication in Yoshkaola, the, the capital of the Mariel Republic at university, uh, for a long time was Estonian. Because in the former Soviet Union, the best Finno-Ugric studies program that you had was at the University of Tartu. And uh, the best and brightest students all went to Estonia to study there and then returned to places like Yoshkala to study there, having spent five years in Estonia studying Mari. So when I was in Yoshkala the first time in 2008, at that point, I did not know any Russian and my Mari was not great yet either. But I did speak a lot of Estonian. And to my big surprise, the language that I could mostly speak with people in at the university in Yoshkola, it was not English, it was not German, it was Estonian, because everybody there spoke it. Oh, that's that's brilliant. What a what a what a treat as well. You know, who whoever said that Estonian wasn't an international language? That's fantastic. This is all wonderful, and I I love hearing about the deep linguistic richness of Russia. Of course, it's going to be linguistically diverse. It's massive as a country. One thing, though, you know, we've mentioned, of course, the the modern day influence of Russian, which is considerable. Can I assume that Mari is written in the Cyrillic alphabet? Or could we just talk a little bit, how is Mari written down? And also, is there a vibrant literary uh, scene in this language? Are there books? Are there plays and poems written in, in Mari? Yeah, so Mari is indeed written in Cyrillic. There is no known literary tradition using other alphabets, which is not to say that it didn't exist. Uh, maybe there were some writings of in Mari using the Arabic script, which was used for all the neighboring Turkic languages up to the 20th century. But as far as we know, outside of like the Mari diaspora in Estonia texting uh, using the Latin alphabet or whatnot, uh, Mari literacy always used the Cyrillic alphabet, but different versions of the Cyrillic alphabet that in the 1920s and the 1930s, there was a version of the Cyrillic alphabet was, was used, which basically completely disregarded all the aspects of the Cyrillic alphabet that are tailored to the needs of Russian. And uh, this is what was used in what we can call the golden age of Mari literacy, the second golden age I have mentioned today, in the 1920s and 1930s, when an absolutely massive amount of literature was produced in Mari. And, but in the late 1930s, we had the, the Stalinist purges, which were a disaster for the Mari community that they have not recovered from to today. That basically this whole intelligentsia that was built up in the early Soviet Union, they were in a mass executed, all the people who had been producing all these liter literary works in Mari. And at the same time, there was also a decree came from Moscow that 
your orthography looks too weird and non-Russian, make your orthography look more Russian. So, and the forced orthographic reform that then happened in 1937, this is roughly still the orthography which is used today, that it in certain aspects, it mimics the Russian alphabet. It uses the whole, the whole duality of vowel signs, even though in Mori it makes very little sense. There are some slight defects to it, but it is, uh, it is still mostly functional. There are some adaptations over the Russian alphabet for some of the sounds that Mari has that Russian doesn't have. Uh, most notably, you have in Mari, you have an ö and an ü sound that you might know from German, Finnish, Estonian and whatnot. And uh, the German system of the diaresis or an umlaut was just transferred to Mari. You use, you put two dots on top of your letter to make the front variant. And then we also have a ligature uh, for the velar nasal and mm, uh, where they just stuck the, the Russian letters of N and G and made a ligature of those both. And that is then also used in Mari. So even though we never had quite the literary production in uh, in Mari again, as we had in the 1920s and 1930s, there is still a vibrant community that you do have, like uh, you have a daily newspaper that, that shows up in Mari. You have a bunch of weekly publications. You have a monthly literature publication. It's like 100 to 200 pages, comes out once a month, uh, is also published online at this point. You have some translations, especially from Finnish and Estonian into Mari that have been that were funded by cultural uh, programs in those countries. Uh, also, some minor things from Hungary. That, like for example, a lot of poems by Sándor Petőfi, the Hungarian national poet, have been translated into Mari. There are some own productions of Mari too. Like my favorite Mari book is called Kecsesotcsés Jüdvelöste, which means the sun is born or rises in the north. And it is an autobiographical tale of a Mari, uh, a Mari journalist who got the job to run an editorial office in Pivek on the Chukchi Sea in the far east of the Russian Federation. And it is a story of how he, as somebody coming from the West, which is to say Yoshka Ola, traveled to the far east, which say Pivek, and the culture shock he experienced going there. Just, just it's an absolutely it's an absolutely fascinating read experiencing somebody talking about culture shock in contrast to their culture and their culture being one that has given me intense culture shock. After that superb and thorough introduction to the Māori language, I feel very educated and enthused about Māori. Um, but I would like to turn away from the language for the moment and talk about one person who I dare say has a fantastic and rich relationship with Māori, which is, of course, yourself, Jeremy. And, and in this, your reputation sort of precedes you. I mean, the first time I met you, which was in the centre of Prague, it was a mutual friend who, you know, set up this meeting. It was a wonderful afternoon, very well spent. Um, and he said, oh, Jeremy, the Māori guy. And I meet you, oh yeah, the Māori guy. So I, I know that you are deeply involved with this language and the study of this language as a linguist and as a language learner, but I'd like to ask how and why. How did you come to know Māori? So just tell us, what is the story of your relationship with this language? So Māori is not actually my first linguistic love. My first linguistic love was, as was the case for Johanna Lakso, Estonian. Uh, that is where my Uralic journey started. 
And uh, some personal background of mine is that I was actually a uh, computer scientist before I was a linguist. I studied computer science and I did linguistics as a side because being able to program is kind of like driving a car. It's not very meaningful unless you have some idea of where you want to drive with the car. Likewise, programming itself as a skill is only meaningful if you know what you want to program with it. I wanted to do things that interest me, so I started studying linguistics too, thinking that this intersection of IT competencies and linguistics would be fruitful, and so far it has been. So I was primarily studying Estonian, but in the course program at the University of Vienna, it was mandatory to do at least one minor Finno-Ugric language where minor is understood as anything other than Finnish, Estonian, and Hungarian. This was uh, put in place by Johanna Laksa and her colleagues at the time to ensure that people do not get the biased view of the Uralic languages that you would get if you just know the languages from the Western periphery. And it just so happened that Mari was the language that was offered when I was at the, the stage of my life where firstly, I needed the credit. And secondly, I was up for new experiences. So I enrolled in the Mari class taught by Timothy Riese, started studying this language and very quickly realized that well, firstly, I just absolutely adored the language itself. I adored the sound of the language. I adored the structures of the language. Uh, I mean, I, Estonian will always have a special place in my heart. But as a speaker of German, Estonian is a lot more familiar, shall we say, than Mari is. Like you are, if you're studying Estonian and you know German, you keep running into old friends. Whereas Mari feels like something, this could be from a different planet. It is structurally completely unfamiliar, aside from the stem, word stems that I recognized from Estonian. I realized that, that I immediately took a liking to the language. And I also realized that there is a huge deficit as regards scholarly attention paid to these languages. There's actually stuff to do. Um, Estonian, Finnish, and Hungarian all have national philologies working with them. Mari also has it to a smaller extent with the institutions that you have in Yoshkaola as a status of a national language for this of the of the of a constituent of the Russian Federation, but it's not quite on the same level. There's not, for example, one thing I quickly realized is that there was no meaningful dictionary to use uh, if you don't speak Russian. But there is just there are printed Mari Russian dictionaries, but there was not anything that I could use. So I thought, well, I started chatting with Timothy Riese, my, my teacher and later doctoral supervisor, about uh, like, oh, it would be really nice if there was a Mari English dictionary. And eventually we came to, well, wouldn't it be nice if we actually compiled such a dictionary? And we ended up bringing in uh, project funds to make this happen. If, uh, if you are ever curious why I didn't sleep very much between 2010 and 2014, that is why, because I was busy creating a Mari English dictionary in um, that time frame. So there was just so much to do and so much where also then my, my competency as a computer scientist was uh, extremely useful to like process these huge amounts of data that we had for all these plans that we had. But there were also just an immediately aspects of the language that uh, immediately just took my heart and ran off with it. If I can give you one example, like in the, in the syntax of this language, a lot of it is a lot more Eastern, shall we say, which is to say that there are certain grammatical structures that if you know Mari, you might look at the grammatical structures of Mongolian and you will recognize, uh, oh yeah, we do the same thing. 
the way that reported speech works, for example. But uh, specifically, a feature I would like to talk about are the so-called converb constructions that we have in Mari. So converb is a, uh, you might call these forms gerunds, depending on your linguistic background. It is a non-finite verbal form primarily used in, uh, in combination with other verbs. So it would be like the ing forms in English can be you uh, fall sort of into this category in some cases. Like you say, the, the man stood there crying or whatnot. It modifies the crying, modifies the stood in this case. So Mari has like a huge body of pairings of verbs where you would say things like, I drinking sent a shot of vodka. Drinking scent, what is up with that? Well, if you think of sending, the act, and this is yun koltash in Mari, it is yun is drinking and koltash is to send. Originally, this verb meant like to let go or like a raft in a river to send something downstream or whatnot. But what, what's up with this pairing? Well, if you think of the act of sending something away, sending off a letter, you have the letter in your hand, you go to the post box, you throw it in, and it is gone. You have changed the circumstances in the word in a way where you had something at the, at the start of the action and you don't have it at the end. And you just take this structuring of an activity and you couple it with drinking, and you have drinking something tops up, drinking something until there's nothing, nothing left. Another, like, another example of this whole mechanism is falling in love in Mari is loving placing. Why loving placing? Well, loving is a status verb. To love is a status. It, it describes what something is like in the word. Placing marks an activity where, like, if you are placing a book on the shelf, you have something in your hand, you put it there, you have changed the circumstances in the word that something that was not there before is now there. And if you take this aspect of placing and ignore, like, the activity itself and just sort of the structuring of the event and transfer it onto loving... Loving, but it is a changing of the structures of the word. You're adding something that was to it that was not there before. You have falling in love or loving placing as it is in Mori. And it is, it is very cool to, when working with a language, constantly finding new ways to conceptualize the word that we live in that are perfectly logical, but that you never even considered before you studied this language. I mean, it seems no stranger to me than saying falling in love, where in the preposition is about, you know, being somehow within the walls or somehow confined by something. So, yeah, it, it seems no stranger to me than that. And uh, and yet, of course, being, you know, a European language speaker, for me, it, it is alien. I, I don't know this at all. And it, it's fascinating. I suppose I, I have to ask, you've mentioned already that you have you've been out there you've been on the ground in the Mariel Republic and in Russia um so you've been involved in language documentation in you know in working with speakers of the language um could you tell us what has that been like what's the experience been is it you know positive negative enjoyable or not and also has it been affected your work on Mari uh, by the Russian invasion of Ukraine and consequently the new political situation yeah, so I have actually been more involved in language description than language documentation. I haven't really done much linguistic field work in the traditional sense of that I travel to some village and sit down the sit down various grandmothers that I can find and get them to talk about various things while I record them. I've more been uh, involved in the creation of reference materials like a dictionary, a textbook, uh, a learner's grammar, a corpus, and um, other materials of this type. Interacting with community was at first somewhat shocking that when I started uh, working with Mari, I just 
for fun at some point create a morphological generator, a paradigm generator, where you give in, uh, you enter uh, a noun in the nominative singular, and it gives you the, it, it creates the paradigm. And I showed this to my, my supervisor and uh, asked him, does he think that this is in any way useful? And he said, well, it looks cool to me, but I don't feel competent to trust, uh, like to verify its accuracy or anything like that. We should do that with like members of the community. So uh, this was 2000 and early 2008. As a naive young person, I just, I Googled and I saw, can I find any online fora where people are chatting in Mari? And I found a forum of the Mari radio and the Mari music scene. And there was a Mari language forum there where people were chatting. So I registered there and I made a post where I, in very basic Mari said, hello, my name is Jeremy Bradley. I am a linguist at the University of Vienna. I really like the Mari language. I have created this and I am looking for Maoris who are willing to look at these things with me, not thinking much of it. And I think I've posted this at some point like uh, late in the evening or during the night and went to sleep. And the next morning I got up and there was something like I opened my inbox and it was 72 new emails or something like that. And I thought, oh God, what has happened? Uh, one of those days. And it turned out that it was, this was an absolute media sensation in Mar among the Maoris that there was some IT guy in Vienna who was posting in Mari in one of their forums. And it was like, there were like articles in all the Mari newspapers and the such about this because it was such an unexpected thing. So over, over the years, um, I traveled to Yoshkaola, the capital of the Mari Republic, many times, also with student groups, which is always a, a didactically extremely valuable experience for them. We build up connections there. We have... Uh, we uh, cooperated and collaborated with scholars uh, from among the community for many years in the creation of uh, various resources that we have on our website, like the Mari English Dictionary, also reference materials on Hilmari and the such. Obviously, these collaborations were a lot easier in 2010 than they are in 2024. The war has basically ended all possibilities to have um, direct interactions with uh, formal interactions with members of the community in Marial for the time being. We still have like private communication with people, but it is, of course, it is extremely awkward. Uh, as we like the Maoris are also among the the people most affected by the war in the way that the Maoris are being disproportionately drafted into the army to fight in Ukraine, and uh, those the Maoris that are drafted are often like sent into the meat grinder. They're the cannon fodder for the Russian army, and um, even if it would be formally possible, I would uh, feel extremely awkward writing to friends and colleagues like, "Hope your family is safe." And uh, by the way, do you have any opinions on these participle structures or anything of the sort? But of course, our desire to, to interact with the community has, has not been altered by all these uh, circumstances. So we are still working with Mari things. We are still putting them out on the internet and members of the community can still access them, um, hopefully as long as the internet remains accessible in, in Russia. And uh, we are still working with Maoris by uh, thanks of the diaspora communities that we have, that there is a Maori diaspora community, especially in Estonia, and there are some Maori native speakers in Hungary. So we are doing, we are still doing Maori, like elicitations with Maori native speakers, but it's mostly then Maori over Zoom with Maori native speakers living in Hungary and Estonia. 
your enthusiasm and your commitment to this language, I think, is obvious for everyone to hear. But amidst all of that great joy in the Mari language, if I can get you to just choose one thing, one feature of this language, completely free reign, it's your choice. What is something that you love about Mari? Something I love about Mari is that it is, of the languages I know, it is the most likely if you come up with some kind of nonsense words that don't you don't think mean anything, Mari is a language in which it will likely mean something. Partially, this is because I have spent so much time staring at Mari that I have sort of lost my mind and start seeing Mari everywhere. But partially, I'm also convinced it is because of the very simple phonology and phonotactics of Mari, that the sound structures are so straightforward in Mari, that it is very easy to hit something, to hit something that exists in Mari. And uh, the famous example of this is there's a, a well-formed sentence in Mari, Kokha Kola, which means the ant dies. So that was very amusing for the Maris when Coca-Cola hit the Russian market around the end of the Soviet Union, that suddenly all over the stores, the ant was dying. So many ants, so many dying ants. Uh, there's also uh, Motorola, which means beautiful city. You have, um, you, you have certain like you have rhymes among the Maris where, this me, uh, where these are integrated. But it's also even if you go to like small no-name shops, budget shops where you have their knockoff brands with nonsense names or whatnot, you're running, if you know Mari, you're running through the, the, the IOs and it's like, oh, that means something in Mari, that means something in Mari, that means something in Mari, that means something in Mari. This Ola, for example, that we have Motor Ola, you might have heard it already when I was referring to the capital of the Mari, our Republic, Yoshkar Ola, that simply means Red City. It's a city that used to be called under uh, on, on the Tsar's time, Tsarevo Kokshaisk, the Tsars in Russian, the Tsar city on the river Kokshaga, where it is in the very early Soviet Union, where you didn't have any Tsar cities anymore, it became Krasno Kokshaisk in Russian, the Red City on the Kokshaga. And then in this period of active support for minority languages in Russia, it became Yoshkar Ola in Mari, the Red City. With regret, I have to move you on to the third and final question, the fourth part of the whole episode, at least until your you know, triumphant return with Mari Part 2 or some other language in the future. But for the moment, what is a feature of this language or this language's story that you would like to leave listeners with? Tell us, what's your parting point about the Mari language? As is always the case, a language is, on the one hand, the symbols seem completely arbitrary. On the other hand, they can tell a story of the language's history. And in Mari, we can we can see this rather transparently. We have heard of like the Russian influence there is on Mari, and in modern Mari, there certainly is a Russian influence. But we have these absolutely centuries of Turkic influence in Mari too, and Turkic of different stripes that we have the. The Tatar influence, Tatar being a sort of, um, uh, if I can say this, a more mainstream Turkic language that is comparatively similar to Turkish. But then we also have a lot of Chuvash influence. And Chuvash is the wild child of uh, the Turkic language family. And uh, so we have all this Chuvash influence here. And then we also have a lot of cultural transmission through these, um, through these languages and the cultures that spoke them. Uh, that a lot of the word stock that we have in Mari is ultimately Persian and Arabic, just from as being on the fringes of the wider Islamic world. And there is a lot of there's a lot of like Islamic cultural 
Islamic cultural artifacts in Mari that people do not have the meta understanding of them, what it is. Like Hai in Mari is Salam. A priest in Mari paganism is the Mullah. So we recognize these things, but then the speakers of Maoris don't necessarily, don't necessarily generally have no idea where these things come from. And as a result of this, for example, I have this, I have this you have this, this strange phenomenon sometimes like, I will look at a at an Indonesian word list and I will recognize a bunch of words because it is on a, the other fringe of the wider Islamic word in the wider sense uh, and also has its Arabic cultural transmission. So, for example, the Mari word, there's a Mari word, kuat, meaning strength. And in Indonesian, kuat means strong. Same stem, same Arabic stem in both cases. And um, I think Mari is a very, very nice example, of course, from my biased view of just how much history, uh, modern language, arbitrary as it might seem at the, at the first sight, carries with it. That is such a great point. I love the fact that you can find cognates within Indonesian and Mari, thousands of miles apart from one another. But, but there you go. People travel and their languages travel with them. A super point there to end on. All I could just say is just thank you so much, Jeremy, for, for coming on today, for sharing your love and your deep knowledge of the Māori language. I think this is great because you've given us not only an introduction and a potted history of Māori and its speakers, but also, of course, the wider context of Russia, this diversity that I think people in the West just don't know about. They, we, we can't assume that any of the languages that you've mentioned actually will be familiar to people apart from Russian. So wonderful. Final questions from me is that uh, if people would like to know more about your work, if people would like, for example, to find out what you do with Māori and this amazing dictionary that you've worked on, where can people find you online? Well, as common as my name is within the English-speaking world, it is not common in Austria. So if you just Google Jeremy Bradley Vienna, you have found me. You have found my my university website. Also, uh, I operate the website www.mari-language.com, which is where we collect all the reference materials for Mari that we have created. So if you want to have a look at our 700 plus pages textbook of, of Mari for autodidactic learners of the language or our 80 plus hour video course of Mari that we have created or our Mari English Dictionary. It's all on that website. Jeremy, thank you so much for coming on today. I think this episode could easily turn into three hours. I just love listening to all of this, but uh, well, we'll just have to have you back for Mari Point 2 or for something else. But for the moment, at least, thank you so much. Thanks again for having me. And as I say in Mari, Veskana Ushmeshke, until we meet again. Before this episode ends, there's a little time left for my final fun fact. As regular listeners will know, this is my chance to share a morsel of language info that I reckon you'll find interesting. Here's one. What word can link Russian railways to a 13th century Anglo-Norman knight? The knight in question is Folks de Breote, who served King John and King Henry III of England. He gave his name to the London area of Vauxhall, Folks Hall, where in 1661 a formal garden was later established. This garden was so popular and influential that Vauxhall became a word for a public garden in various European languages, including French, German, Polish, and Russian. Now, 
In the 1830s, with the building of a railway between St. Petersburg and Pavlovsk, a Vauxhall was built to complement the project and attract users. It was through this association between railways and public gardens that today, amazingly, the Russian word for a station is Vagzal. That's everything for this first episode of Series 2. Heartfelt thanks must go to my guest today, Jeremy, and of course to you, dear listener, for listening. Listen out for further episodes very soon, and in the meantime, keep well and keep loving language. Thank you.